You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Oliver Luckett is a technology entrepreneur and currently CEO of Rivolo Park, a global culture accelerator. He's served as the head of innovation at Walt Disney Company and co-founder of the video sharing platform Rever. As CEO of the audience, he's worked with clients ranging from Obama for America to American Express with Michael J. Casey. His new book is The Social Organism, A Radical Understanding of Social Media to Transform Your Business and Life. Thank you for joining me, Oliver. Hey, thanks for having me. This is a very interesting uh, proposal. What you are saying is is that the internet and the and especially the social media are akin to a, a living creature. And one of the things that, as we explore this book, we realize that. But what I thought was really interesting, this book begins with the social media response to the Dylan Roof killings, the church killings. And by the time we, and we see that social media was right there with all sorts of responses that were important and necessary. By the time I finished the book, my perception of that was that social media was like the white cells attacking (laughs) some horrible infection on our uh, society. Well, sure. I mean, good. I'm glad you, I'm glad you get the metaphor. You know, the, the book really, came out of, you know, my career, which has been uh, building the internet systems that a lot of us use from fiber optic networks to voice over the internet to video sharing uh, and some of the other examples to then populating content on those networks on behalf of some of the most famous people in the world uh, and most famous brands in the world and, and teaching people how to publish natively inside of those systems, how to build personas, how to build you know, these characters that live in, inside of social systems and, and, and really try to provide valuable content. And what, what's happened is, is that as these networks have become increasingly complex and increasingly pervasive in our lives, and as more and more data is available to professionals and people like myself that, that, have, been, that have been helping this process along, I just started seeing these patterns. You know, we've already taken and used uh, words and nomenclature that describe things as viral in nature, you know, these, these, uh, uh, cellular responses, etc. And so it was really dawned on me, uh, a few years ago when I was asked to draw a drawing, I was given this award and I was asked to draw a drawing of what I thought the future of social media would be. And, you know, I take, I kind of take these things seriously and so I uh, thought about well, what can I draw? And I knew how to draw network systems because I had worked at Quest and, and other places in Rever, uh, building out you know, VoIP networks with servers and routers and, and communication lines. And then also as a kid, I was given this unbelievable experience by this professor, Alice Franceschetti, when I was in AP biology in high school. I was a very disruptive kid. And she said, you know, we think you're really smart, but, you know, you clearly can't be in my classroom room to kick you out every day. So why don't you go work at a research lab? And so I worked at a platelet research lab for two years in high school, uh, ended up uh, working on human platelets and how they respond during homeostasis. Uh, when you know an injury occurs or a cut occurs, there's a series of enzymatic pathways called the arachidonic acid pathway that that you know this cascading series of events that end in sealing a wound and causing coagulation and, and other things, clot retraction and other things like that. And so in, in drawing this drawing, I was thinking like, how can I describe the complexity of 1.3 billion human beings connected together a network of no time and distance in, in a simple drawing? And so I went back, I went out into the desert and I kind of went back to my childhood of, of of, of, of loving nature and loving biology and dry it. And it suddenly dawned on me that the only way to describe this oncoming complexity and oncoming system is to look at it like a biological system. 
And once I kind of, I literally went back to my old textbook and saw the seven rules of life that just define it. And so, you know, this book is, is, is the beginning of that exploration of all of these patterns that we've seen. I mean, what you were referring to was a terrible act of hate that triggered almost, a, you know, an antibody response. But if you dig one level deeper, what's so fascinating is, is that in order for the body uh, to recognize something as an antigen, it has to recognize it as an antigen, right? It has to see that that pattern, uh, that molecular pattern uh, of charges and shape and, 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 and whatnot um, are recognizable as something bad in the body, right? And if you look at the metaphor of someone like Dylan Roofs, it's, it's, you have to recognize what he did as hate, and you have to look at the Confederate flag as a symbol of hate. And so it was so interesting to me was after 150 years of that flag being sold, being did, especially me coming from the South, it was fascinating to me to see that, that you know, suddenly overnight, Amazon and eBay and the world kind of saw this as a symbol of hate and took it off their shelves. Walmart took it off its shelves. And said, and suddenly we saw this kind of antibody response to this antigen of the Confederate flag, a symbol of hate. And, and we saw that because social media reacted in such a violent way around getting rid of that and purging that hate from our society. And it leads into everything from conversations around free speech to conversations around what's going on in America and around the world right now with very polarizing ideas of politics and everything from religion and politics and our bodies, you know, all these different conversations. And so what's been so exciting for me in writing this book with Michael, uh, uh, who I met very organically, it was, I can tell you that story, but, but, you know, with writing this book with Michael is as things unfolded in our kind of current history, as we were writing the book, it just became one example after another example that you could apply to this overarching metaphor. Right. And that metaphor, of course, is that, you know, in order to make sense of the social systems that we are building and engaging in on an ubiquitous basis now, how to behave in a sustainable way. You also uh, talk about your religious upbringing. Uh, for example, you, you were a Catholic and you talk about the way sure. that religious and was used to spread memes and messages through the world and the power of those steeples and the places of worship where people would go and see the memes represented. Uh, I think that this is, again, you can see all the parallels to what's happening in the social media right now. Correct. I mean, you know, what's, what's important is to understand, uh, uh, you know, I, I was lucky in that I've kind of grown up understanding mass media from the perspective of building the systems, right? Or at least building the systems that are changing the concepts of it, moving from a hierarchical structure to a Hellenic structure, for instance. But the church is an amazing thing, and the church meaning you know, religion and the propagation of that religious information. You know, if you look at it, it was really the first broadcast network, right? You mentioned steeples. Steeples had a purpose. They were meant to awe and inspire you in a local town. They were always the tallest buildings, the most mm -hmm. grand buildings. And they had the most gorgeous artifacts and history and mythology and memes and, you know, beautiful of golden vestment and, and stained glass and, you know, things that looked miraculous and, you know, flying buttress architecture. And, you know, you, you name it, the technological and, and, and kind of content evolution occurred in those churches at the highest form. And so that awe and inspiration created a network of audiences. You know, when that steeple would ring at 8 a.m. and call people to mass or call people to prayer or call people to assembly, then suddenly they had a chance to receive a message that was a broadcast message. It was a top-down hierarchical message that came from God to a person and allowed them to use technology of writing and then the printing press and the propagation of that information to transport that message. And inside of those messages that were conveyed you know, during this broadcast moment of, of assembly or mass, right? In those messages were incontrovertible truths, dogmas. If you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, then this is going to happen. And those were very powerful organizers of our society. 
And a lot of that has changed, right? It, it, it didn't change until recently, though. It really, that architecture persisted with radio. It persisted with television, right? It was, you know, it, even in book distribution, you know, the newsmakers and the news curators and, and, and the, the top-down hierarchy of television and, you know, having to, having to you know, earn your way into the, the boardroom to make a decision with a few group of people of what information would be disseminated, that led to very interesting and controlled power structures. And now we don't have that anymore. This, uh, this last election proved that, right? There is no originator or truth teller or verifier of what is real or not anymore because we live in a cellular system where any node on the network can be just as powerful as any other node because that top-down top architecture of control of information just simply doesn't exist. We flattened our communication structure in such a way that we need new rules of how to engage with it, how to identify things as bad, as fake, as nefarious, identify those antigens in our society, and then have appropriate responses to them. That's the moment in time that we are grappling with. And we will evolve through it and from it, but we're right smack dab in the middle of what we talk about in this book. We've gone from entirely curated cultural content to crowdsourcing cultural content. And now we're in the process of trying to figure out how to insert curation into crowdsourcing. That's uh, obviously something Correct. easier said than done. Correct. Well, let's look at homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Let's look at what our bodies created uh, through, you know, millions of years of evolution, right? Let's look at those systems, whether it's, you know, whether it's our immune system or our circulatory system or, you know, na name a system that we have to keep our levels correct, keep our temperature correct, our pH correct, our, you know, invaders out of our system. How do we strengthen our bodies so that the next time we encounter that virus or or bacteria that we're, we're, we, we've learned from it, we've equipped, you know, we've, we've equipped ourselves to it. And so when you get to the edges of science right now, you know, it's fascinating to look at the same techniques that we use now at the cutting edge of technology and, and science of immunotherapy, of stem cells, of reprogramming our bodies to identify HIV or identify something as cancerous. It hides, it's using our own cells. It is our own cells through mutation, right? That, that's hard to our body to recognize, hey, this is a subtle difference here. You know, this is bad. Let's excise this and get rid of this and let's attack it. Let's have macrophages attack it. And, you know, the same thing is existing in our culture right now. And unless we have those really, and I talk a lot and it's so polarizing for fucking, I have no idea why, a concept like Black Lives Matter would polarize anyone in 2016 as a human <laughs> rights statement is just astonishing to me. It right? is. But even that concept is being disputed right now, that we must integrate that into our cultural DNA, that Black Lives Matter, that all lives matter, that human beings are equal, and that matters. That's not a universal truth right now. And we've got to build that into our systems and starting at a young age, teach people how to do this because we now see that that's the core root of a major series of problems in our country and in our world right now is that we don't all believe that. And we've got to inherently ingrain that into our DNA. One way to do that, one way that that will happen is through evolution. Now, in this book, you show that kind of famous sequence of, you know, the ape evolving into the man. But I was thinking that uh, a sequence that's exactly put into your book is the example of Friendster essentially evolving into Facebook, <laughs> a, a process that you were part of. So talk about that. And, Correct. And the people that you knew and how that um, how there were some rules. Zuckerberg, he really identified the import of and the wisdom of crowdsourcing all his content. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, what, what's, what's amazing too is to look at the failures. You know, when you look at Friendster's failure, there were three big ideas. The first was, 
is that there was no flexibility in in Jonathan Abrams, and I can't speak for him, but I can witness what I witnessed, you know, and talk about it is there was no flexibility in the concept that you were a person or a music artist or a character. It was, you know, it, in his it was like you, you had to be able to fuck. Right. You had to be able to, to hook up with somebody online because Friendster was meant to introduce people for dating and for, you know, for 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 hooking up. And so that opened the door to people like MySpace. Right. But what MySpace also did, I mean, MySpace had a had a pedigree of of, you know, intermix, which was spammers. And so they I remember getting, you know, a <laughs> Friendster messages that's like, oh, Friendster's lame. You know, I'm moving over to MySpace. Well, that was pretty much a, a systemic attack, you know, on, we didn't call it that back then, but that was, you know, that was a, a, a removal of service attack. You know, I was, you know, come over here, come to the, come to the, the other land. And then the third thing was, you know, is that Friendster couldn't keep up technologically with its explosive growth, right? It had a lot of problems. And so companies like MySpace capitalized on it. What's ironic is, is that then MySpace suffered the same downfall with applications, right? Rever was actually the first application to be to be censored space. Because when Fox bought them, they wanted to control all the revenue opportunities. And Rever, of course, was an example of I could create a piece of content, upload that content, I could share it across other networks like LiveJournal or MySpace or others, right, by using a URL embed, which were so common, common or used today. But MySpace didn't like the idea that we were serving ads at the end of those videos and then rewarding creators, right? They're a media company now uh, with Fox's acquisition. So when you type www.rever.com into MySpace and hit enter to publish it, it would go www.com. And they literally censored the word Rever out of it. And then suddenly, all these other application providers, well, what Facebook did at the time was Facebook allowed a whole host of applications. Bite yourself with a vampire. You could authenticate yourself with Facebook. You could do. And so that type of openness is what led people in droves away from MySpace, right? And so every time, what, what that teaches you is that the more open you are as a platform, the more you allow your audience to uh, evolve creatively, creatively through applications, through different different you know ideas and architectures, then the more uses the platform is going to have. And Facebook has done an amazing job of constantly evolving and integrating themselves so deeply in our lives that now it's at a real warning point of being our online identity. Facebook is your online identity. Right. It's connected to your Spotify, to your Netflix, to your SoundCloud, to, your, you know, you name an application that requires your authentic. And I learned this the hard way when I, like many, many other people I'm later have come out of the woodwork, you know, when suddenly when you're kicked off the system for, you know, name a host of reasons. I sent a picture of a micro penis to a friend of mine. Uh, and suddenly an algorithm set off in chat that I was trafficking in child pornography you know, a 47-year-old man with a micropenis image that I privately sent to another adult suddenly kicked me off the system while I was in a car listening to Spotify and everything shuts off. Spotify shuts off. I mean, it was terrifying. And then I suddenly get an alert that says you can't do anything. You're under review for international child pornography. We'll get back to you. That's pretty fucking scary. Right. And that happened to me. And once you talk about it openly, everybody's like, oh, my God, I got kicked off for Nipplegate. I got kicked off for this. So it's like it's not pornographic images. It's, you know, did I say something in a comment that could be construed as racist or hate? You know, it's like it goes on and on and on. And so they're at a very interesting, scary moment in time right now as to does one person get to edit our culture? Because that's where we are. We're at a moment in time where one person has the ability to censor and edit our culture in the most subtle way, right? It's, it's, we, we look at communication systems and think, wow, when I post something on Facebook, of course my friends are going to see it. That is just not true anymore, right? There are deep algorithms at play here. Well, that's created echo chambers, as we've learned in this last election. It's created opportunities for fake news, all because the business model of Facebook is about controlling access to information and controlling access to 
what we thought was public viewable shared information. You never hear Trump saying, I'm going to go Facebook this. No, he's tweeting it because it's a raw fire hose without an algorithm, right? He knows that his message is going to hit an intended audience because it's a direct connection, right? Whereas Facebook is not a direct connection. It's got a lot of things about the, the subtle uh, uh, manipulation of their audience for the sake of, you know, learning data sets when they were, you know, they, they, there was a great article that came out that I referenced in the book where 300,000 people at random were just given more positive posts over a period of time to see how they would behave. That's wrong. Those people didn't know that Facebook was manipulating them for the, for a scientific research study. That's wrong. That is the kind of stuff that we need a code of ethics around. We need a code of, 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 of really etiquette around this stuff because I don't want to be a guinea pig. That's not right. Tell me if I'm going to be. I want transparency in those systems. You have a word in here, holarchy. What do you mean by that? I think that's one of the, your central concepts. Sure. Well, you know, a holonic system is... I mean, it, it is a cellular system in nature, right? It's, it's you know, in, in language, we call it like a synecdoche, a part for the whole and a whole for the part to be able to define something. But a, a holarchy is, uh, in, in describing it to, to kind of people that don't understand, it's almost like the Russian dolls that stack themselves in each other, right? One is Russian nesting dolls. Exactly. I think they're called babushka doll. I mean, I, I, I don't know the exact name of them, but, but, um, uh, because I don't speak Russian, but, uh, but if, if you think about every node on the network, if you will, everything is, is its own self. Right. And, and it doesn't mean, and it's, and it's a, a stopping point for itself. So in evolution, a holonic system is the idea that, you know, a monkey is just fine being a monkey. It does its things. It has its role. It has its 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 place. But then a human is is now an extension of that, and it has its role and its place. And so the idea is, is that that we're moving. It is the opposite of a top down hierarchy, where at every level you have a decreasing importance to the system, right? And so that's one aspect. And the other aspect of it is just a very simple idea of that it is cellular in nature, right? That, that we are creating a holonic system because each of us bring our attributes to the network and we participate in the network and we are part of a whole, but all of us combined together represent a new whole, right? And, and, and that is this idea of the social organism. It is holonic in nature in that respect. And so it, it is, it's, it's, it, it's such a fascinating concept and it's a concept that has now been applied to business, right? So I, we talk a lot about Zappos and how Zappos built a literally their a holonic architecture where it's like, if you're going to be doing marketing, then I'm going to rely upon you to do your job in, in your way, in a free, expressive way. And I'm going to rely upon you to be the best at what you do. And I'm going to go over here and do engineering and I'm going to go over, and we're going to all interplay, but I'm not going to be your boss and you're not going to be my boss. I'm going to rely upon you to come to the table with a set of skills and a, and, and a set of responsibility and a set of etiquette and all of those things that give personal freedom and, you know, this kind of millennial idea of freedom and expression and all these things that has become so important as a value set. But I'm going to give you an architecture to interplay with. In those ways. And that's why I use the epigraph in the book of from Aldous Huxley that says, you know, the only corner of the universe you can control is yourself. That's a really fascinating concept because our societies have been structured from the metaphor of religion to the metaphor of, you know, hierarchy at work is that we have leaders and we listen to those leaders and those leaders define us and give us tasks. And it's like, no, 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 no. What if we're all just you know, all, we, we're all, we all have our own intelligence and we all are, are viewed that way and we all get to contribute in, in that manner to society. And we now really are because the other fast correlate to that is in a top-down model of communication, those lines are controlled by one person, right? If I broadcast to the television audience in Detroit, then that antenna is broadcasting to all the homes and you can choose whether or not to receive that signal, 
If I'm broadcasting on the internet, I'm reliant upon the next person that gets that signal to propagate it again, right? I'm reliant upon that person to become a redistributor of my content, of my idea. That's why copyright law has been so difficult to understand and acknowledge in uh, in these interconnected systems like the internet, because copyright was easy when you just had a few channels, you know, to push it through. But you know, with the dawn of Napster and the dawn of BitTorrent and the dawn of you know just basically cellular communications at a at a very granular level, and the ability for everyone to be a creator or a remixer or you know to build derivative works, you know, copyright is 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 literally uh, a, a, an impediment to, to cultural evolution, right? It is, it's, it's like, you know, the opposite of flow dynamics. It's clogging your arteries with these rules and regulations. And what's funny is, is that it's almost hurt the copyright holders that enforce it the most, right? You know, you hear about the record labels and here and all these other businesses now emerge, Look at Spotify. Spotify is based on the idea we're going to give you access to the world's information and the world's uh, music information and now going into video information. And we're going to give that to you for you know 10 bucks a month, unlimited access. 36 million people have subscribed to it. Netflix is upending the, the um, uh, uh, movie industry and television industry and provides because one of the biggest things, I mean, I live in Iceland now. I can't tell you how frustrating it is to hear about something that happened in America, go on to YouTube, go on to NBC.com, and not one piece of content which has global relevance is available to me on this island because we're at, you know, last on the list of giving it, giving it license. But I have Netflix, and so do 136 other countries because they realize that anything that Netflix produces will have global rights attached to it. That's the triumph of Netflix, is that their audience base is a billion people, not... 300 million or 200 million in America that have you know internet access. And so those are the kinds of rules that when you look at this Hellenic architecture and, and rely upon people to be your redistributors of information, that give people these personal freedoms, that trust people in our society to be good and to do the right things, then that is the architecture that we're moving to away from this top-down architecture. Right? That That's... I think culturally, that's the easiest way to look at it. One of the main things we're going to have to do is to rejigger our perceptions of ourselves within this new social media landscape. And I think one of the biggest changes that's going to be happening is for companies and people in terms of brands, because brands yep. are an essential are in essence, I think, almost a different kind of life form from a human and can have a different kind of life uh, style and projection life track as it were. No people's person. I mean, look, we're already seeing the, who you are in real life, you know, IRL and who you are on Facebook or on Instagram. And it, it used to be that you didn't look at a person's personal life when you hired them, right? It was almost taboo. You didn't ask personal questions. Now you go on Facebook, you go on Instagram, you see them on Tinder. I mean, you, you know, that, that has become a real, you know, personification of who you are. And I think that, you know, as culture evolves, you know, uh, it's very interesting to see, you know, kids that were very living very publicly in high school, you know, learning that that stuff catches up with me and deleting in droves their Facebook accounts or making them private and then moving to platforms like Snapchat that allowed them to still have that playful tone and that, you know, that, that communication with their friends without leaving a permanent record. Right. So, so we're seeing the systems adapt to all of these different lifestyles and behaviors, you know? And so that's, that's to me is just fascinating. I mean, I, I helped, you know, hundreds of celebrities that, that it, their careers in the public eye emerged before social media. And they realized suddenly that, Oh shit, my audiences are now in social media who am I? Am I the Charlize Theron that, that had high school buddies? Am I the Charlize Theron that's, you know, this ingenue on, on television and screen? Am I the Charlize Theron that's interested in, you know, Africa and HIV reform? Who, who, which one am I? And, or I'm the one in the paparazzi, you know? And so I, I had such an amazing, amazing human experience 
an empathetic experience sitting down with hundreds of these celebrities who frankly were kind of terrified, right? They were terrified that, that if I embrace this, then suddenly like I'm giving away something or I'm, I'm exposing my family and friends to too much or, you know, this is uncomfortable for me, right? Because what was, was amazing is, is that because of copyright law especially, Charlize Theron didn't own any images of herself. The movie studio owned her in Mad Max. The paparazzi photographer owned her images of her walking out of a restaurant. The, you know, the magazine photographer owned her cover images of, you know, on Vogue. And so that was one of the biggest revelations to me is that we had to go in literally in order to build their personas with them. We had to go and license Getty images and wire images and all these things so that these people could tell their own stories. It was just fascinating and showed you. And then now we see them embracing the ones that are becoming successful and have, you know, multiple revenue streams in their careers, not just being hired to read a script and, and, and portray a character, but those that have direct audiences. I mean, the Kardashians are masters at this, right? Nobody wants to ever give them credit. They're fucking wizards at it, right? They, they have built empires on being able to play multiple roles multiple personas, right? And I talk a lot about David Bowie in the book because he passed away, you know, while, while Michael and I were writing this book. And, and you know, he was the perfect chameleon who could create all of these different characters, right? And he could, he could embrace all different people because human beings want to look and see and feel like they are part of something with someone that is authentic, that has experienced their emotions and their feelings, but that inspires them to grow and to change and to evolve, right? That is, that is what our heroes are, right? They're showing us somebody that, that they could be, right, because we have the same set of values, right? We have a brand that, you know, whenever I try to teach people what the difference between marketing, for instance, and a brand is, marketing is me trying to tell you what to think. A brand is a shared set of values, right? I mean, I moved to the country of Iceland, of traveling all over the world. I saw that Iceland had a set of values that I finally resonated with, of humanism and democracy and egalitarianism and sustainability. I live on an island now where not one fossil fuel is burned to heat a house or provide electricity for anything. It's all geothermal. It's all hydroelectric, right? I live in a society now where, you know what? When we find out our leaders are in the Panama Papers, within 24 hours, we oust them because we organized on Facebook. Because access to the internet, access to your money, access to speak your mind are human rights here, right? I made a movie with American Express about paid lenders in America, about the shadowy hundreds of billions of dollars that is parasitically sucking out of the economy of America into the hands of these payday lenders with their usury, you know, a thousand percent in annualized interest. I mean, it's just absurd the amount of abuse that's happening. It's, you know, it's expensive to be poor in America. Here, it's a human right to have access to your money tied to your national ID called a Kinitella, which is also tied to your genetic ID, which is also tied to your, his, your, your, your health history. So they don't even need a credit score here because there is transparency. That's fascinating to me. Like that, that, That's a really fascinating moment in time, and I'm here learning about maybe there's a template out there for helping our society in the future and, and, and I think I found a very interesting one. Of course, it's not perfect, but I found a very interesting one, right? And so that's why I'm, I'm actually, not that you asked, but that's why I'm living here in Iceland now is because I found this little kind of utopia, if you will, uh, that's, that, that has taught me a tremendous amount in the last year of living here. In your book, you write that the digital era has turned us all into chameleons and you are a chameleon who found the perfect place where your natural coloring was meshed with the camouflage of the background and you were right in sync with your surroundings. Correct. <laughs> uh, Correct. Because I wasn't really meshing well in Mississippi. <laughs> you know, I, would imagine, I would imagine not. Um, 
you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I praise my father and Morgan Freeman for everything they've done there from cultural tourism to you know, being a mayor to even running, you know, sacrificing himself to run as a Democrat for mayor there. And then I go back home and they pass legislation that says that I can be, uh, you know, that if I'm a single mother uh, or a homosexual, that I can be refused service at any private institution in Mississippi. You. You know, that's it is 2016. That is disgusting to me that that would be a a, a a criteria right now, you know, for a society that they would be making laws like that in 2016. Well, I think that uh, the power of the social media, as you describe it, is that that is a place that where the white cells of the immune system will soon be flooding in much the same way that Black Lives Matter is once the as the social uh, organism begins to understand itself and its own personality. Uh, you know, one of the things that interested me was that. Uh, but only if we flood it with the good. <laughs> See, that's the, we have to maintain that sense of responsibility that we, as in a holonic system, as cells in the system, must continue to flood it with the good. We have you to write a story we want to be over. in. <laughs> yeah, you can't. You have to write it. You have to tell it over and over and over. Uh, this uh, takes me. Sorry to interrupt. You, oh, no, no, no. I, I, that's exactly uh, the point. Is that we? Uh, I think that the the power of the stories in this book is really interesting. Uh, for example, the the GamerGate scandal. I think that this is a perfect example of how social media works and and how how it it helps to you know attack these contagions. And I think that. So talk about that. Did you were you a part of that? No, I wasn't. I'm really an observer in that. My, Michael was really much more kind of involved in that because he was he was making his move over to MIT and, and, and a lot closer to that community. But, you know, what I think is interesting out of it is the technology and the approaches of, you know, how do you ro because censoring people, I mean, this is what it gets down to. You can't censor people because it just it, it's like you can't, you know, when I use the metaphor of the boll weevil in Mississippi, you know, you can't try to eradicate something through brute force over and over and over. We have learned that when you try to suppress something, it pops its ugly head up somewhere else in a more powerful form. Right. We've learned that now through antibiotics. We've learned that, you know, the abuse of antibiotics. I was just hearing a news report the other day about, you know, these you know, we hear it all over about these super virulent strains of, you know, everything from MRSA to, to you know, to, to lung bacteria and you know, all these different kind of, 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 of antigens that are mutating because we're using very brunt, brute force tactics of what equate to basically censorship. You know, wipe out this with a chemical or wipe this out as opposed to, as, as I referenced earlier, this immunological concept of, of how we use immunotherapy to retrain our bodies to recognize these things, to use the millions of years of evolution, to to use those you know hyper precise techniques of 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 attacking an antigen. And so, if you look at what kind of some of the outcomes of GamerGate, you look at what Riot Games have done, and some others, is you're starting to see that they're trying to give positive reinforcement to good behavior as opposed to negative reinforcement, right? And it's the same thing if you look at, at, at platforms like Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin gives you positive reinforcement to participate as a faster transaction engine inside of it, as a distributed transaction engine. And so these are the systems that we're evolving into that are trying to reward the good and suppress the bad, so to speak, right? But then it's what's bad and who gets to dictate bad. And so that's where our human set of etiquette and ethics has to emerge and become rules of the system, right? We have to learn how to, how to, how to subtly build those in so that we are not harming people and so that we understand that this is harm. And Gamergate was an example of just, just, you know, horrible things being done and said to people. And even look at what Leslie Jones went through with Ghostbusters. I mean, that was just, you know, I got a call off representative of her about that. And I'm just like, look, the one thing I know to be the most that you can never do is feed the trolls. You just can't acknowledge it. I mean, I've been attacked online by people 
uh, before, and you just can't acknowledge it. No matter what you feel is your right to defend yourself, it's almost like you just can never embrace feeding them. You can't even acknowledge them. It's almost like quantum theory. It's like it doesn't exist unless you see it, right? And so so you can't and unless you observe it. And so what I've learned is, is that you simply cannot feed the trolls. And at the same time, the only defense you have is to try to ed- educate with positivity and with 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 new stories and new educate people and reward them for being the good cells in the system, so to speak. But God, it's a complex issue that doesn't really have easy solutions. And that's why I think we have to understand at least its complexity because censorship ain't going to work, right? Anytime you try to censor something online and when I hear these brute force efforts to try to censor people, that's when you start getting, you know, the fake newses of the world come back even stronger. That's when you get the, you know, the, the, um, uh, the Macedonian teenagers writing these stories because they're hacking the ad system of Facebook to try to propagate this news because they're making money off of, you know, ad revenue coming from these. You know, that's a positive feedback loop for being bad. So how do we eliminate that? I think the first you know, response that Facebook did that kind of went unnoticed because it's technical was they're not allowing some of these, quote, fake news sites to buy boosted media on their system anymore. Right. So they're not allowing the the positive tools to be used for this kind of nefarious reasons. But how do they dictate what's good and bad? Right. You know, so it's it, it gets back to some real fundamental issues of we have to take responsibility for ourselves at every level. Right. We have to be good citizens inside of these systems. But not everybody wants to be. And I think. A no, good, I know. A good oh, example please. is, as you say, one of the scariest aspects of these diseases has been a new a rise in the new breed of popular fascism and populist oh, fascism. Lord. And nothing has done more for populist fascism in the past uh, few years than Twitter and Facebook. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. And it has to be muted out by the good. You have to flood it with the positive. So many people have always come to me and said, you know, Oliver, it's like something bad in my life happened. How do I how do I overcome the search engine algorithm for this? How do I get my name? You know, I remember a client a long time ago had had a, uh, a terrible incident occur at you know, it was on this Google search results. I'm like, look, you can't do anything. You just have to flood it with the good. You know, get get better stories out there. Go do something, you know, put media, you know, flood it with the positive so that hopefully that overcomes, you know, these kind of negative things. Even if you're not responsible or not, it's not up to anyone to decide anymore. It's just really a a game of flooding it with the good. And that's why, you know, I've been spending my last year working on this book and, and, and releasing the book and moving to Iceland and adapting to a new society. But my next chapter in my life is... I want to use everything I've learned and everything I'm learning to try to encourage people to build content and media and distribute it as widely and as ubiquitously as possible that celebrates beautiful things in our lives and celebrates art and celebrates a diversity of voices. Because I know just from my own little personal experiences, and I think many people share this, is you you don't accept somebody that's homosexual when you've never met one. When you don't even see that that's not the devil's work or it's not, you know, until, you know, you always hear this great story. It's like, you know what? I was I was a homophobe until, you know, I found out that my favorite cousin was gay and then suddenly it's OK because it's close to home and I don't hate that person. And so I think that so much of our world and the, and the negativity of it is sheer ignorance, right? It's sheer ignorance. And so the more that we can put out there a diversity of voices, the more that we can, that's why Norman Lear is just such a hero of mine. Here is a guy who I grew up watching good times and all in the family and, and San Francisco, all these amazing where, you know, black people on television, right. That lived, you know, the Jeffersons that lived in a, you know, in a high rise of, you know, fancy apartment. Like the idea of black people being that was foreign to me in Mississippi. In Mississippi, black people, when I was growing up, were subjugated to basically, you know, a, an advanced form of sharecropping, right? The economic, you know, there was no, there was no site. And then suddenly a Norman Lear puts, 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 you know, humanizes black people on television. That taught me something amazing. That was using that medium to teach me something amazing about human rights and civil rights that I had not been exposed to. 
we must continue creating content that does that, that inspires people, and that is shared and propagated and allowed to flow freely and ubiquitously if we are going to overcome these symbols of hate. And it is not bitching about Trump on Facebook. I don't want to see that anymore. It's how do we reprogram people? How do we how do we expose people to something positive and good and new? Because over the head, because they're a Trump supporter, only makes them stronger, right? It only makes them stronger, right? And so that's what we saw happen in the last election. And you know, it's funny. I've I, I look at you know I've never written a book before. I've never sold you know a book on Amazon myself. And I look at my book reviews, and it's very polarizing. You know, people say, oh, this is a great book. I love the science. I love the ideas. I love the metaphor. But fuck, he's a liberal faggot. And I'm just like, whoa, really? <laughs> fuck, guess that didn't work. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like I can't even believe. I mean, several of them have now been removed, I think, because they just equated to hate speech. But it's really fascinating to see how polarizing and, you know, this, this whole cycle has been recently. It's just it's 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 absurd when. When it, it, it has to take empathy and understanding and listening to people and accepting people. You know, I was not one of those people. I was not surprised at all uh, at his victory, right? Because I was able to look at it from both sides and be objective about it and not be, you know, so polarizing as people might, might find me to, to be. This is not the case. I saw both sides. I saw the empathy of it. I saw the you know, the fact that there are 100 million people in America that feel disenfranchised, right? They just happen to be white and middle class or poor, and you know, and they come from all walks, but they like this, you know, quote, liberal agenda was, was, and by the way, it was. If you, up until the election, if you looked at any interview of any Trump supporter, it was the people of Walmart in a parking lot making fun of them for being rednecks or, you know, or, or just total idiots, right? You know, I learned that that's not all Trump supporters are not idiots, right? There are a lot of very smart people that want to change, and you have to respect that. And you have to respect the idiots, too, for, for wanting change, you know? So, so you know, it, it's been a real eye-opening experience to watch both sides in this debate, especially because I get to do it from the luxury of a, of a volcano in the North Atlantic, so I don't really have dealing with it every night at dinner. But... You know, which is a total cop out. I must admit, I kind of, you know, I, I'm I'm happy that I was able to do it. You're uh, watching the world go yeah, to hell good. from your volcano lair. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you know, from our concrete bunker, we really did. <laughs> when you were talking about uh, changing minds, I think it struck me that um, the idea of flooding with good is that, um, but nobody has ever had their mind changed by somebody trying to impose that change on them. People Never. change their mind because they want to. And you will not inspire somebody to want to change their mind by telling them they were wrong. You will inspire somebody to change their mind by showing them something that is right that they can agree with. Correct. And I think that that's, that's where the internet, uh, the, the evolutionary aspect of the internet is really important. You, you can't make a plant grow by shouting grow at it. <laughs> you know, you just, it's not going to work. You need to give it nutrients and you need to give it a climate that's acceptable and you need to give it a calm place and you need to give it light and let it do its thing, right? Because it is a holonic system designed to do its thing as a plant. I got to work on Toy Story 3. People love Buzz and Woody and, you know, the toy gang, right? But it had been 11 years since Toy Story 2. And marketing, you know, the marketing geniuses wanted to do the four quadrant marketing of men, women, young and old. And, you know, they were like, you know, and, and then it was it just happened to coincide with the birth of pages on Facebook in 2009. And and so Disney and, and its acquisition of me and other companies was very progressive. And Bob Iger is one of my heroes. And I got an unbelievable opportunity to work at Disney and to and to really help them expand their thought. But. You know, my first line of business there was how do we open up Disney, one of that literally rewrote copyright law multiple times, you know, the Mickey Mouse Act and all this. How do I how do I get them to open up and say, you know what, maybe we should embrace these systems? 
And it took a lot of a lot of interesting conversations and a lot of respectful conversations to educate lawyers, educate business people, educate marketers that, you know what, those 64 million pieces of art in that archive up in Emeryville that, that John Laster and Ed Catmull had, 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 had championed the preservation of, that was the most important asset to communicate with them, not a slick marketing poster, right? And sure enough, the first post that we ever made for Toy Story 3 uh, was, you know, the Toy Story franchise was a post was was a post that was given to me by the marketing uh, group. And it said, look, we're going to give the first look at the poster, the, the three, the, the yellow three with the black background. We're going to give you the first look on social media, you know, and, and they wrote the copy. And, you know, my job was to you know post it on Facebook and, and see what happened. And so I get this post and it's the movie poster. It's, you know, the three on the on the um, on the black background, you know, no friend gets left behind kind of idea. And uh, and the cop. Hey, kids, here's the new Toy Story three poster. Isn't it great? Question mark. And within five minutes, we had over 700 uses of the word fuck. No, it's not fucking great. You fucking ruined my childhood. Fuck you, Disney. Fuck you, Pixar. I mean, it was just vitriol. And I pulled it down and I was freaking out. And I went to the guy and, and said, you know, the guy who made the poster, I said, I don't think they like your poster. And he goes, Oliver, he's like, put the thing up. He's like, they don't like your rhetorical voice. And I was like, hmm. He's like, you know, do you ever like it when someone says, isn't it right, Oliver? I was like, well, I think maybe you got a point there. Because nobody had ever, you know, screamed at a billboard on sunset that had some marketing message that was telling you what to do. There was no feedback loop. But now with social media, there was a feedback loop. There was a comment and a like and a share and, a, you know. And so, and so I said, wow. And he said, put the poster back up. So the next day we put the poster back up. Hey, here's the new Toy Story 3 poster, period. There was not one negative comment on the entire thread. Yay, we love Toy Story 3. We love you, Disney. We love you, Pixar. There's a snake in my boot. Like, it was shattering to me to see that everything I'd ever been taught in marketing didn't apply anymore to this medium of social media. It was all about giving people information and letting them decide what they thought, not telling them what they thought by using this kind of catchy rhetorical voice. The new book by Oliver Luckett is The Social Organism. Thank you for joining me, Oliver. Hey, I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.